Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman, and this is Pharmacy with F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a place for conversations that matter. And today's conversation really matters to all of us, because my guest today is Dr. Toby Cosgrove, who's my boss, or I guess he was my boss <laughs> until I retired. I was. <laughs> and who's an extraordinary visionary healthcare leader, who is going to talk to us today about healthcare because it is one of the seminal issues of our time that determines so much about what's happening in the world today. And it's often something that people really misunderstand. And Toby uh, is the former CEO and president of Cleveland Clinic. He served from 2004 to 2017, led this $8 billion organization, did all sorts of amazing things in terms of leading the organization, building a new medical school and healthcare campus, building uh, extensions in Abu Dhabi and now in London and Florida and, and Canada and, uh, and, and uh, Las Vegas. He's uh, reorganized the entire clinic to be more collaborative. He's really inspired innovation. Uh, and he's really a quite an unusual guy. He went to Williams College, University of Virginia School of Medicine, worked at Mass General. He's in Vietnam as a surgeon and uh, has done some extraordinary things with his life uh, and now is... I would say retired, but not exactly, because I don't know. How, he's, 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 uh, I'm not going to say how old he is, but he's a lot older than he looks, and he's going as hard as ever, transforming healthcare and keeping the mission going. So welcome to Doctor's Pharmacy, Toby. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So, you know, you're a kind of unusual guy. We met uh, a number of years ago, I was speaking at the mm -hmm. World Economic Forum, and I think it was maybe your wife, you probably know who I was, invited me <laughs> to dinner at a small group of people. And I jokingly was very provocative, and I went up to you and said, hey, Toby, what if I could empty out half your hospitals and cut your angioplasties and bypasses in half? And this is the number one heart hospital in the world. And you were like, that would be a good idea. I said, well, we're gonna, how are you going to pay the bills? He said, we'll figure it out. And then after that, we began a conversation about how we need to rethink our approach to chronic disease. But you know, you're a heart surgeon. You've done 22,000 heart operations. You've pioneered 50 patents. You've done extraordinary things with your career and have led this organization in a way that has made it one of the best in the world, if probably not the best in most categories. So what, what was it that sort of shifted you from the traditional medical paradigm to actually being visionary and innovative in, in your thinking about health and healthcare? Well, really, at the end of the day, we want to keep people healthy. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the problems that we deal with every day are secondary to how people lead their lives. Uh, smoking, obesity, uh, those sorts of problems are first and foremost in our minds. And if we can uh, stop dealing with those problems, we can have people live a lot better and a lot longer. And that's really what we're up to in as far as healthcare is concerned. But most doctors are not focused on that end of the stick. They're focused on the other end, which is dealing with the patient when they come to the hospital. You're like, well, wait a minute, we, we need to do something differently here. What, what was the aha moment where like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not going to just be operating on people's mitral valves. I need to do something bigger. Well, you know, what we really need to do is we need to move from a sick care organization to a health care organization, and we need to try and keep people healthy. And that was the whole impetus of trying to think about how we change the organization and, uh, and our incentives for doing that. And at the end of the day, everybody's headed in the same direction. Eventually, everybody's going to get sick with some sort of a problem or another. But we want to minimize that, have people live as long as possible, and live great, healthy lives. And you've done that here at Cleveland Clinic. I mean, you took risk as a CEO. You got in big trouble for trying to get rid of McDonald's here. You got rid of all the soda. I mean, this is unheard of in most in most hospital yeah. systems. Yeah, well, we started out by deciding that we would not allow any smoking on our campus. And then we decided not to hire smokers. And I got a lot of pushback on that. But at the end of the day, it really was the right thing to do. And now our incidence of smoking has gone from somewhere around 15 to 20% down to 5% of our employees. And they're healthier. And you've saved huge amounts of money within the organization. 
yeah. on healthcare costs for the employees. Yeah, at the end, well, what we did is we really began to look first at keeping people well. So we didn't hire smokers, we encouraged exercise, we changed the food across the organization, and then we went to disease management uh, with people who were incentive to uh, take care of themselves if they had diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, asthma, smoking, or hypertension. And what we've seen is that the inflation rate of healthcare has gone from going up at 7.5% a year to being flat for the last five years. Yeah, you actually said something, and it's very important. You paid people to get well or stay well. You incentivized them with reductions in their healthcare premiums and yes, other incentives, right? Exactly. And you paid for smoking <clears throat> cessation and Weight Watchers and other health programs and for their CURS membership or whatever it is. Yeah, we did. We did do that because, we, and you know, at the end of the day, what it did was we saw a twenty percent reduction in sick days. Uh, we saw a major reduction in people coming to with diabetes and hypertension to coming to the emergency room and being admitted to the hospitals. Uh, it just uh, kept people well, and it's 100,000 people. And so we learned how to keep people well and keep them out of the hospital. So you've done that for the employees, but right. now we have to focus on the patients. And I think part of um, what's happening, and I want to get a little nerdy in this space because it's an area where I think you're passionate about, is the whole idea of value-based care. Now, for people who don't know what that is, it means historically in medicine, doctors got paid when they did something. Right. Like if you did a procedure, if you saw a patient in right. visit, it was like basically widgets, you know, volume. The more volume right. you did, the more money you exactly. made. Now we're shifting to paying for value, meaning getting people healthy and reducing costs. Exactly. And that's a very big different shift in trend. So how, as a healthcare leader, do you think that's going to impact practice? And what are the kinds of changes you're going to see? Well, what we're going to do is now uh, incent people to uh, take care of people, keep them out of the hospital, keep them well. Uh, and, you know, that's going to start with primary care initially. Uh, but uh, the whole idea is to try to keep people well. Uh, and we're going to be paid, you know, a certain amount per month per individual uh, to take care of people. And if we have to have them have heart surgery, it's going to be more expensive. So if mm -hmm. we can keep them, their cholesterol's down and their hypertension under control, um, we're not going to have to do so much heart surgery. So maybe emptying out the hospitals would save you a lot of money. It will. <laughs> but, but, but at the end of the day, you know, the hospitals are turning more and more into acute care organizations. Yeah. And we can't build the intensive care fast enough because we get really very sick people. Yeah. But, you know, we're seeing more and more people being taken care of out of the hospital and less and less of invasive surgical procedures. And that's the way it should be. So in terms of the economics here, is this something that's it's going to happen? Because I think people are still stuck in the old model of thinking in the right. way individuals approach healthcare and the way businesses, even policy hasn't quite moved there. But if it does, it seems like it's going to incentivize payment for the right things instead of necessarily just doing more things. Exactly. And, you know, we've been on this journey now for almost 10 years, uh, but the, the Medicare has said they're going to be paying for 50 percent of what they could pay us for uh, by, on the basis of value. Uh, by 2020. So, so half of all the reimbursements from Medicare are going to be based on whether or not you're creating healthier people and lowering costs. Exactly. And and so I think that's a, that's one of the big payers in healthcare. And I, I think that's going to be a spur to having more and more people uh, moving to the values. And, and what is that going to look like in a practical way in a place like Cleveland Clinic, where it's in traditionally a volume-based place, like everybody in healthcare, and it's, it's an acute care hospital. How do you begin to shift that? Well, I think well, the way we begin to shift it is we begin to incent physicians to look after people differently. Uh, right now, they're being incented to do more of various things. Happily, we're not as far along with, on that road as other places because we're all straight salaries, so it doesn't really make any difference. We do more, we do less. Yeah. 
on a day-to-day basis as far as our pay is concerned. Yeah. But but over time, we're going to be an incentive to keep people out of the hospital, to manage their diabetes, to keep their weight under control, um, all of those things instead of just um, being taking care of them for their acute problem. Yeah, and you know, um, I met with the former chief of staff here when I asked him, what did he think about healthcare at Cleveland Clinic in five or 10 years? What would it look like? And he said, it's healthcare without walls. Meaning we have to rethink delivering healthcare as well as what we're doing, where we do it. And whether it's virtual care, whether it's using other tools, we're gonna to talk about in a minute, like artificial intelligence in healthcare, uh, whether it's um, actually community-based models. You know, I, I know you know a project we're working on creating a food pharmacy, which would take the idea that, you know, if diabetes is caused by food, why don't we give them food instead of drugs and see what happens and give them the support in their community to actually change their behavior. And some groups have done this like Geisinger and have reduced their healthcare costs in these diabetic patients by 80% over a year or so, which is dramatic. I mean, if you think one in three Medicare dollars is on diabetes and you can do that, that's a game changer. Well, there's no question about it. We need to ha- have more incentive to, to keep people well and all kinds of ways we can do it. Now, the interesting thing is that so much of what we're talking about is the social determinants of healthcare. Yes. And uh, traditionally, uh, we have not been involved in that as, as uh, healthcare providers. Uh, and more and more, we're being called on to do that. Now, interestingly, the payment model so far has not uh, incented us to do that, nor to have we had the training nor the expertise to do those sorts of things. So it's a whole paradigm shift. <laughs> so for true. It's true. You know, the biggest things that drive disease are the social determinants, and that includes the food. Exactly. Uh, and if you address those two things, you can dramatically change. And that's part of what we're doing with the food pharmacies, the food insecure diabetics, teaching them, you know, going to their kitchens and cleaning out their cupboards and showing them how to shop and showing them how to cook and, you know, what an avocado is and how to you know, do the things that they need to do to actually change that. And it, and it works if you do it, but it's, it's a very different model. But if, all of a sudden, if Cleveland Clinic you know, is taking care of 3 million diabetics and you, know, you have to pay if you uh, don't take care of these patients uh, well, then the incentives change and, and the monetary changes. So all of a sudden, Cleveland Clinic may be paying for 10,000 health coaches or maybe paying for food for you know, thousands of people to actually do this at home. So it's a very different vision. So one of the things we've done is we started putting kitchens in a lot of the places uh, that we've built recently that will have the ability to teach people how to cook. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, our new health education facility is gonna have that same sort of capability to begin to teach medical students and nurses, et cetera, how to uh, prepare meals. Yeah, imagine if everybody after they got discharged from the cardiac unit had to go to a cooking class for a few days as part of their discharge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Um, so you, you've been around a long time. Uh, I don't wanna say how long. <laughs> I have been around a long time. <laughs> and you've seen a lot of changes in healthcare. Uh, in terms of the biggest trends that are happening now, uh, you're, you're, you have a unique view because uh, I know you really well and I see you go to all sorts of non-medical meetings where there's technology and innovation and business and science and things that are out of the normal domain of healthcare, but it informs your thinking and informs your way of seeing the world. It gives you ideas about where these worlds intersect. And and it's led to, I think, some really probably very interesting insights about you know, where we're going, one of the biggest things that we need to be thinking about going forward, because we're in an unsustainable nosedive as far as I'm concerned in terms of chronic disease, which is counting, I mean, just obesity and type two diabetes, according to the Milken Institute, accounts for $3.4 trillion in direct and indirect healthcare costs. That's 20% of our GDP. So where where are we going? What are the trends and what should we be thinking about? Well, well clearly we've got to do two things. Uh, we've got to uh, begin to make the healthcare delivery system uh, for people who are sick more efficient. 
and we've got to keep people well. We've talked a little bit about keeping well, yeah. about food and smoking and, and uh, preventing diabetes and all the things that are associated with that and the obesity that is associated with everything from heart disease to cancer. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the efficiency of the healthcare delivery mm -hmm. system for people. One of the things that's really fascinated me has been the explosion in data. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if you look at it just for doctors, there are 5,800 journals putting out 800,000 articles a year. Now you're, I, read, I read a few of them. Yeah, you read a few of them. I got it, you got through 800,000 Maybe 10. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's just an overwhelming amount of data. The second thing is that we're just being inundated with the data. Uh, just think about the human genome. It, mm -hmm. It's got 3 billion base pairs, and that's going to be part of looking after people who are sick. So how are we going to keep track of all this? So the total amount of knowledge in healthcare is now doubling every 73 days. And it used to be, what, every 150 years? Yeah, it used to be 150. 50 years. Uh, but now we just have this explosion of data. Now that's a problem and that's also a blessing and an opportunity. Mm. The problem is we've got to be able to store it and we've got to be able to retrieve it and we've got to be, uh, and that is an issue that I think is probably ultimately going to get uh, solved with putting the, uh, that information, storing it in the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're seeing more and more healthcare organizations realize that they've got to have that sort of capacity to keep track of that information. Now, the opportunity with that is we got this huge amount of data. Now we can analyze it. And we've got AI and machine learning that are going to come in and bring us realizations about people that we had no idea yes. about predictions about uh, where people's health are gonna go, uh, how you can prevent these sorts of problems. And we, as we begin to analyze this data, we're coming to all kinds of conclusions we had no idea yeah. existed. So I think it's both uh, a curse because we got so much and it's a blessing because we have so much and now we have the opportunity to begin to learn it. And that's why I've been interested in working with companies like Google. Yeah, they, but you now are on the yeah, I'm a Google Health and Life Sciences uh, I'm a advisor, right? I'm a consultant for them, yeah. And, and it's, a very, it's a fascinating uh, capability that they have, and I think if we can direct that towards managing this uh, healthcare, it's going to improve our efficiency and keep a lot of people healthier than they have been in the past. Yeah, it's important. I remember once I had a guy come in from Merrill Lynch who was a financial and, you know, advisor, and I said, how many of your decisions you make every day are guided by your computer technology and the data you have. He said, what do you mean, everything? I said, you know how many we have in medicine that are driven by that? Right. Zero. Exactly. <laughs> it's you got the doctor, you hope he learned what he's supposed to learn and he's gonna do what he's supposed to do. And it's it's overwhelming because you can't connect all the dots. And so this whole machine learning AI is actually gonna make sense hopefully of this. And you know, I think functional medicine, I believe, is a way of thinking about how to filter the data because you have to make sense of it through some kind of algorithm and you need to have a way of learning based on principles. So I think it's a very powerful thing. Watson, I know you're very involved with, which I think is, is the, the uh, computer that beat the guy in Jeopardy, uh, which is awesome, but he only knows what you, information you put in. So if you're putting in the world is flat information, it's very different than our understanding of systems biology and, and the future of healthcare based on this, this model. Right, and stop and think about it. I mean, healthcare is way more uh, difficult than Je Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more information. It's and, and it's much more complicated than the game of Go, for example. Yeah. So, you know, the, we have got to see that that capability in, in increases. And not just about the actual dealing with people's health, actually dealing with this, uh, how we um, manage patients coming through the healthcare delivery system. Just mm -hmm. think, for example, about how hard it is to make an appointment to see a, a physician. 
It's, yeah. a, it's nearly impossible. Yeah. We have 500 people working in our call center and doing 5 million calls a year uh, to try and get people into the system. <clears throat> we ought to be able to put together a, a algorithm that'll handle that quick as a wink. Yeah, and also billing and other, all the inefficiencies, it's, it's pretty frightening. But I think the biggest thing is how do you get medical decision support? How far away are we from having medical decision support for doctors where patients can fill out questionnaires or labs go in, all their biometrics, their microbiome, their their genetics, and come up with, okay, here's what you should think about doctor. Well, I think we're coming to that. <clears throat> it's, it's not gonna be uh, tomorrow for everybody all over the country or all over the world to do that, but we're starting to see uh, the capabilities of doing that, and we're starting to see more and more uh, information coming from the human genome. Yeah, interesting. <clears throat> I, I, um, I went to a lecture recently at uh, this conference, and there was a cancer doctor giving a talk about uh, immunotherapy and about food as medicine. Mm -hmm. And he said, we found that there's a particular bacteria in the gut called acromancia, which doesn't matter, it's a fancy name, but that if people don't have this bacteria in their gut, which is a beneficial bacteria, they don't respond to immunotherapy, but those who actually have this bacteria respond to immunotherapy. Now that's just one little tiny data point, but think about the implications of that, you know, where he actually ran through all these different foods and how they compare to drugs through these fancy diagnostic sort of you know, throughput technologies allow us to see what drugs or foods work. The foods were as good or better than a lot of the drugs for the same condition. Well, think about the, the, the ramifications of the, the, not thousands, but millions of permutations and combinations there are of food, drugs, individuals, sex, weight, microbiome yeah. genetics yeah it's huge yeah it is huge so any other any other trends you're seeing in terms of healthcare we've got we've got value-based care we've got ai and big data well the other trend we, that we have to see is the fact that we are dealing and just basically in the economy uh we are seeing the cost of healthcare go up um we're going to see it continue to be a pressure on it for two reasons one is more older people and two more things we can do for people Mm -hmm. So those are the reasons we have to be able to figure out how we make uh, delivery and prevention uh, much more efficient. So you, you've been involved a lot with Washington. I know you know the head of Medicare. You were asked by three different presidents to help them with thinking about healthcare. Cleveland Clinic's been held up by uh, presidents as the bastion of what we should all be going for in healthcare. Um, you know, what's your sense of the ability to actually change policy? Because we have so many disparate policies that are all at odds with each other that are actually promoting the exact opposite of what we want, you know? And I think it's not about cutting entitlements or keeping entitlements. It's about figuring out how to change the, the values so we get people better. It's really hard to change the policy in, in Washington. There's no question about it. Which we, is why you, we didn't take the jobs that they offered you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, just, just think about it for a second. Um, one of the things that makes me really uh, crazy is the fact that we are subsidizing the growing of sugar. Mm -hmm. And sugar is in everything. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we pay for it to help them grow it, and then we pay for it to help keep get uh, people uh, well from the results of giving them sugar. Right. Uh, it, it makes very little sense. Yeah, we, we pay for these commodities to be grown with subsidies. Mm -hmm. We pay for food stamps, to, like which is almost a trillion dollars every 10 years in food stamps, 75% of which is junk and sugar and soda. And then we pay for Medicare and Medicaid on the back end, we're like triple taxing the, the consumer. Exactly. And it's it's kind of a whole screwy thing. You know, I don't know if you know, but uh, with Tim Ryan and another another mm -hmm. um, congresswoman and uh, Darius Masafarian who's the Dean of Tufts School of Nutrition and Health Policy, uh, we got them to get the GAO, the General Accountability Office, to do an analysis of all the different agencies 
policies that relate to food, how they're often at odds with each other, and how they're helping or subverting our health and the economy, which hopefully will come out and shed some light on all the nonsense that's going on. Well, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, and it has actually wound up being a very detrimental to the health of the country. Mm. I think another area that you could begin to think about as far as policy is smoking. Yep. You know, and, you know, cigarettes uh, are clearly the uh, most reversible or preventable cause of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think anybody questions that. Happily, we're seeing our incidence of smoking going down across the country. It's still 13% uh, of the people in the United States smoke. Uh, it's a major cause of emphysema. It's a major cause of cancer of all types. And, uh, you know, it would be very nice to just tax uh, cigarettes right out of existence. And, yeah. you know, you could. Aren't they like $10 a pack now? Well, you know, make them $20 a pack. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and uh, because, you know, we are, are in fact, uh, causing that to cause the cost of health care to go up. Yeah. You know, I had Larry Summers on the podcast. We talked about his mm-hmm. new initiative with Michael Bloomberg around fiscal policies, working with fiscal leaders and, you know, fiscal uh, secretaries, ministers, finance ministers, treasury ministers all around the country, all around the world to tax uh, junk food and soda as a way of creating these disincentives for consuming the wrong thing. Yeah, I think that, the you know, t- taxing soda is one thing, but the base problem is not just soda. It's the sugar and everything. Yeah, and and soda is just one of those, and so I would I would think about uh, yeah. getting down to the root cause, which is uh, sugar rather than the actual delivery. And it's also starch, starch and sugar. You know, a friend of mine who's a professor at Harvard says, you know, below the neck, your body can't tell the difference between a bowl of cornflakes and a bowl of sugar. <laughs> you know, because the way it works metabolically is almost yeah, the same. Exactly, it's such a huge issue. So. Um, Changing subjects for a minute, uh, why in the world would you bring somebody crazy like me into Cleveland Clinic to do functional medicine, especially? Well, I've been asking myself that for a long time now. No, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we understand that the functional medicine is really built around the things that influence you, and which are your genes and the, th- and the uh, things in your environment. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, is in the environment is food, uh, and that's uh, a lot of uh, what causes chronic disease. Uh, and you know you are, have addressed this uh, very directly with functional medicine, and I think this is a capabilities that we at the Cleveland Clinic need to bring into our repertoire and begin to learn from and to begin to understand and uh, the data and put it out there so other people can follow the lead. That's amazing, Tom, because you know most most healthcare leaders would not take a risk. So what what is it about you that allows you to take these risks and? put at these bold initiatives that everybody's gonna sort of criticize. And you, by the way, you got a lot of pushback from a lot of doctors here when oh, you yeah. brought us in. Yeah, no, I've gotten a lot of pushback on a lot of things, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to go with what you think is a, an appropriate sort of thing, and you can't be afraid of failing. Yeah. I mean, I've failed so much along the way that uh, you know, it doesn't bother me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think you always learn from your failures, but you're not afraid to begin to push in a direction you think might work. I think this is one of those uh, opportunities. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we, we've been really blessed to be here. We've grown from just six people and then we have over 50. We have a beautiful center space you created for us where we have 3,000 people on the waiting list. We're doing innovative programs in the community and shared medical appointments. We're, we're trying to do the value-based 
equation in our research, which we're going to be publishing this year. It's very exciting to see the changes. I mean, we see just without our pharma data, we're seeing 20% cost reduction over 18 months. We're seeing improvement in clinical outcome was better than most other practices. So I think it's really uh, it's, it's really a risk you took, but I, I hope you don't <laughs> regret it. And I think it's been a real, um, uh, you know, both a flashpoint, but also an inspiration for a lot of people in healthcare and uh, other healthcare institutions. If Toby's doing it, why aren't we doing it? You know, like well, you know, feed it to Toby and see if Toby likes it. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, you know, one of one of the things that uh, is is really important is um, you know this work with Google that you're doing, and it's it's I think it's really uh, something people don't understand. And I think it, I don't know if you how much you can share given the constraints of what Google's doing, but it would be great for people to hear about how how are technology companies creating innovation where healthcare isn't because you know. A lot of innovation doesn't come from the center, right? Kodak didn't create a digital camera. Maybe they did, but they didn't figure it out, right? You've got you've got a whole different world um, of disruption in in business that's happening. But that looks like it's happening in healthcare. I think Obama went to meet with a bunch of leaders on healthcare, and he didn't go to the healthcare institutions. He went to the Silicon Valley to meet with them, and everybody's doing it. So, what is happening out there with the tech world, and how are they getting involved in healthcare, and what are the implications for that? Well, I think one of the interesting things we've seen over time is all of a sudden people have realized that uh, healthcare is the biggest industry in the United States. And everybody's interested in it. And the tech companies are interested in it. The, the financial world is interested in it. And uh, it, I'm delighted to see that because it brings new thinking, new impetus into healthcare, which has been a very slow-moving industry. Uh, and you stop and think that um, the model that we have across the United States, as far as hospitals concerned, was built in the Hilburton uh, legislation, which happened in 1950, with every hospital build, every community having its own community hospital. Yeah. Well, that model is gradually being unwound. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but it's very slow, and essentially people don't want to take risks with uh, their care. Uh, and so they have been reluctant to move into different areas. Doctors have not been trained to be particularly risk-taking individuals, so they don't want to veer very far from the, the, the tried and true. So healthcare has moved incredibly slowly relative to other industries. So you're, you're you know, one of the most revered healthcare leaders we have today. And, and if you're going to be advising leaders in healthcare, whether it's insurance or other healthcare institutions or government policy, what are the things that you would say to them given everything you've learned in the last bazillion years? You know, I think, I think the thing that we have to understand and sometimes we lose track of is the only reason that we are in medicine, the only reason we have salaries, the only reason we have hospitals, clinics, whatever it is, is because of the patient. Mm -hmm. And if you keep the patient at the center in your North Star and ask yourself every day, what's the right thing to do for the patient? That'll take us faster and uh, in the right direction. And so I, I think that that should be the North Star, the guiding principle of which we uh, drive healthcare going forward. And it'll be an amazing change in how we look after people. Um, do you have any things that you wish you had accomplished or had done in your tenure as CEO that you didn't get to do? Well, there's a whole lot of things. You know, I just wish I'd done this, uh, things faster. It's, you always look back and say, gosh, I wish I'd done this faster. Mm. In the world of, of technology, one of the things that's kind of exciting that you brought in here was through a friend of yours who's a technology officer at Microsoft. Uh, and you created a really revolutionary healthcare campus. It's still going up. Uh, so it's, it's not quite done yet. It's beautiful. And it's designed by the guy who 
Mr. Foster, who Norman did, Foster. Who, who did uh, Apple's headquarters, mm-hmm. and you, you got the most amazing architect. And you're bringing in all these different modalities and disciplines into this one center. Right. But you're also changing not only you know the structure, but you're also changing how people are learning. Well, you know, one of the things that we realize is healthcare is really a team sport. Mm-hmm. And it's no, it's so big and so complicated that no longer you can count on just the doctor, but you have to have doctors, nurses, physicians of all types. You need to have uh, the uh, pharmacists, you need to have the PAs, you need to have the dentists, everybody pulling in the same direction. So this is the first time that they've all been uh, educated in the same location. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have the medical school, the nursing school, the dental school, and the PA school all in one building learning together. And we're going to try to bring together new technology like uh, Microsoft's HoloLens. Uh, interestingly, we're going to be teaching anatomy now uh, using virtual reality. Yeah. And, and I, you may have heard me when I've in the Much past. less formaldehyde exposure is better for the doctors. Oh, yeah. And, that, and it's going to be good for their social lives, too, because they're <laughs> not going to smell like formaldehyde. <laughs> But, um, but the other day I'm walking around with a headset on, I'm walking around a heart that's out in space. Yeah. And you can walk all the way around it. And they say, Toby, stick your head in. And so I go like this, my head's in the left ventricle and I'm looking at the outflow track. A view that I've never had as a cardiac surgeon. After 22,000 operations, you never saw that view. Happily, I never did. <laughs> uh, but it gives you a, a, a much better understanding of what the anatomy is than you know some shriveled up ca- yeah. cadaver does. So we're not going to have cadavers anymore. And I think that this begins to apply to a whole lot of things about education. <clears throat> so thinking about it, the educating as a team event and educating mm-hmm. using the new technology. I'm excited about it. That's so great. So you also are good friends with a guy named Leroy Hood, who you, I think, were in Vietnam with maybe? or No, but I... No, at least back then. Yes. And he's a brilliant scientist who's led the way in systems biology. Yes, he is. Uh, and you were part of this program called the Pioneer 100, which yes, is about your biology and create a predictive model. He calls it the P4 model, predictive, mm-hmm. preventive personalized and participatory about how do we how do we rethink the way we we do healthcare based on systems thinking and systems biology that's really what functional medicine tries to do right. so how is that going to change what we do and also education because you know a lot of our medical education system has been set up based on the Flexner report, which was in the twenties, is a hundred year old right. as, as an organization. And now we're we're breaking down the walls. You've got people at Cleveland Clinic here like Dr. Stan Hazen, who'll be on mm-hmm. the podcast, and Kara Sang, who are looking at the microbiome and its role on cancer or heart disease, which is right. well what? You you go to the cardiologist, you're not talking about poop. Well, maybe that's important, right? So how do we then take this emerging science of systems biology and take that and put it into medical education, medical practice. How do you see that going and unfolding? Well, that was, that's an interesting, you know, so I tried to get the, the healthcare uh, medical school here to begin to talk about teaching genomics. Uh, and there was a long, hard pull before we got them to do that. And, and, and the same with nutrition. You know, we go into, I never had a single course in nutrition as a medical student, nor anything about genetics. Yeah. Or genomics. And this is all new information that is going to have to be shared uh, with medical students so they are not uh, thinking so much about uh, anatomy and physiology, but thinking increasingly about the metabolic aspects of healthcare, which is tremendously exciting in brand new areas. It is huge. And it's so, it's such a paradigm shift because all the, not oh, yeah. just the, not just the, you know, collaboration between people as teams, but even like how we think about disease and autoimmune disease and diabetes. And these are all complex diseases that have a, a requirement for a new way of thinking. And yet it's very hard for 
anybody in science to actually change the paradigm, right? There was that book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn talking about the idea of a paradigm shift and how we have this normal science where everything is the way it is. I mean, you've been around long enough. You know that ulcers are caused by stress, that autism is caused by refrigerator mothers, that, you know, uh, you know things that we just now know are ridiculous, but these were the beliefs at the time and it took a long time to overturn these. So how do we, how do we do that? Cause you know, if I, if I were, you know, a healthcare leader, I would want to know, well, I guess I am a little bit, but not like you, but I, I want to know how, how do we change the educational system to bring up a new generation of doctors? How do we change the reimbursement to pay for people to do these things? How do we get the technology to actually be able to think about using all this big data information, systems, thinking, biology, put it all together and actually make sense of it all? Well, we, we have got, I mean, think how great it would be if you had a pharmacist and a nutrition person and a a, uh, social worker is rounding with you every day and seeing your patients. It would change the way you thought about what their problems were and what you could do for them. So we have got to be more inclusive. The team is, it's a team. It's no longer the doctor God. Uh, It is, he's a member of the team uh, and he brings a specialty and technology to it, but it is going to be a huge group of people who have diverse uh, knowledge. And that's where innovation really happens. It happens at the borders of different knowledge. Yeah. I mean, think about the surgeons, back to your ulcers. Uh, think about surgeons year after year yeah. after year after year in the middle of the night operating on people with bleeding ulcers, thinking it was stress and treating with ice water and milk and Maalox. And in fact, it was uh, took a pathologist to finally and a, and a microbiologist to finally figure out it was bacteria yeah. that was causing the problem. It's true. What's interesting is in the, he's talking about these ulcers, which have this bacteria called Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori. Actually, that bacteria was seen there for years when people biopsied, but they just ignored it. That was just incidental. It wasn't relevant. Right. And one guy goes, well, maybe it is. And let me take a beaker of it. I'm going to swallow it, give myself an ulcer, and then treat it with an antibiotic and see if I get better. And then he won the Nobel Prize. And they all laughed at him. Right? No, it's, it, it, that's that's the, the 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 sort of thinking that we need to change. We have to question, and we have to bring in different specialties and different knowledge and different expertise uh, to begin to change the paradigm. But it's tough because you know the educational system doesn't generate the systems thinking, right? Which is <laughs> well, think about it. Think about uh, how we've been selected. You were selected to get to medical school because you got through organic chemistry. Yeah, but I, I studied Buddhism. I don't know why they let me in. <laughs> well, I'm not sure you actually got through, but neither, I, barely. neither I barely got through myself. But I mean, think about how you select them. You select people who can memorize, then you memorize for four years, then you do what you're told through your entire residency and early on into your practice of medicine. Mm-hmm. So you merge at age 45 without a, being encouraged to have any original thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Sad. It is true. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I did not do pre-med. I majored at Cornell in Asian I, studies. I was a history major. Yeah, and... I was taught to think and to analyze and to be critical. And that was my training was. And when I got to medical school, you know, a lot of people were just science driven and they, they didn't know how to sort through the massive amounts of information. So they were overwhelmed. They were having panic attacks, singing up all night. I'm like, oh no, I see. This is the story and the narrative. This is basically what's important. This stuff I don't need to learn. And then I just did really, really well because I was able to sort of think and be critical about what I was learning. And that's a very different skill. Yeah, it's no question. It's a yeah. different skill. But the systems the systems part is tricky because uh, you know our, our definitions are blowing apart about disease. You're seeing these, these themes of mitochondria and inflammation and the microbiome and all these things that are across diseases, across specialties, and, and nobody's really talking to each other. So I think that's what's going to shift. It's very exciting. 
It's very exciting. I want to come back to the patients first, because uh, everywhere in Cleveland Clinic we work here, you see this patients first logo. It's right. prominent everywhere. Right. It's really in front of people's minds. But you're, I think, also not only uh, the first to create a, a chief wellness officer in a wellness institute, but actually to create the chief experience officer. Right. And I think a lot of that maybe came from an experience you had at Harvard Medical School or Harvard Business School, uh, where you where you uh, were, were uh, embarrassed embarrassed by the king right. of. No, I was embarrassed by a student, a student, a student who, who asked the question, Dr. Cosgrove said, Dr. Cosgrove, my father had mitral valve prolapse, and we know you've done more of these than anybody else in the country, but we decided not to come to you, Dr. Cosgrove, because we heard you don't have empathy. <laughs> and I haven't any idea what I said after that. I was totally <laughs> flummoxed. Um, and then the king of Saudi Arabia burst into tears uh, at an opening of a hospital over there uh, because they were talking about the hospital being dedicated to the body and the spirit and the soul of the patient. Mm. <laughs> and so I decided that, you know, I better sort of examine my career. And I realized I'd spent my whole life uh, trying to make the cardiac surgical uh, safer and with lower morbidity and lower mortality. And I'd spent all my time doing that and not paying attention to the person uh, as a person. The person with the mitral valve. <laughs> right. Uh, they were, they were uh, I was a technician. Mm -hmm. And so we really needed to change it. And so that's when we uh, made it a C-level a commitment with a chief experience officer. And we've changed uh, the whole culture, I think, of the organization around the fact that the patient is the reason we're here. And what were the biggest things that came out of that in terms of the chief experience officer? What were the things that, that shifted when you implemented Well, you know, we really stopped and said, okay, what's, what's quality in healthcare? Well, clearly quality in healthcare is outcomes. And it's also about the physical experience and it's about the emotional experience. In the physical experience, we did all kinds of things. We changed the architecture. We looked at uh, more light in the facilities. We changed the sort of a gown that you had so you didn't walk around with your cheeks flapping in the Yeah, you got Diane van Furstenberg to create a new gown. We did. We did. <laughs> a, wrap, a wrap gown. Yeah. And uh, then we began to look at the emotional uh, aspect of it. And we went and brought everybody in the uh, organization, some 40,000 people at that time, uh, into groups. And we talk about, talked about the Cleveland Clinic experience. And as they came out of it, they got a little badge that said, I'm a caregiver. So we refer to everybody now as a caregiver, whether you drive the bus or you're a neurosurgeon, you're all addressed as a caregiver. So it makes a team out of everybody. Yeah. And that really has begun to change uh, both the engagement of the caregivers and also the experience of the patient. Yeah, it's really broken down some of the hierarchy. Yes. Here. Yeah. And uh, you know, you were great to support us in our new center where we took that a step further and created the first well-being certified facility in the in the uh, in the Clem Clinic, which basically has filtered the air differently. The water's the best in Cleveland. The lights are, are not causing fatigue and, and stress. The All the materials, the carpets are all non-off-gassing, non-toxic, and it's created a very amazing work environment. And Cleveland Clinic is like that. The spaces here are beautiful. It doesn't feel like a traditional hospital. I think you've had a huge influence on that. Everybody talks about it. Some people complain about it, but it's really- That's pretty. right. 50 Shades of White is my motto. <laughs> 50 Shades of White. Yeah, it's great. Toby White, they call it. Uh, so this has really been a great conversation. I wanted to end with, uh, uh, one last question. You you have the perspective of years. You have tremendous experience. You've been around in all sorts of different sectors and understand the problems of healthcare and chronic disease and in uh, many problems in the world more than most. Uh, and you're very quiet and humble about it. But if you were king uh, for a day or a week or whatever, however long it took, what would be the things you'd want to implement either from a policy change or a culture change or some things that would actually impact the world in a way that creates more healing and benefit? 
Well, first of all, I think we clearly have to move to value. Uh, instead of paying for volume, pay for value. And that would be all across the board. Secondly, there's a lot of things that the government can do uh, in terms of cigarettes. We talked about that. We talked about uh, the sugar tax um, to begin to decrease the amount of sugar that are in people's diets. And, uh, you know, we need to think about going back to why we're all in healthcare and what should it be. And really, I think if increasingly people were incentive to look after the fact that they had anything to do with healthcare, whether it's manufacturing products or whether in pharmaceuticals or whether it isn't taking care of people. If the, the idea was the reason that you're there is for people, mm-hmm. um, it's going to, that's going to be a changer. And by the way, people first, not just patients first. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really what we're I gotta be about because, you know, as we move more and more towards, uh, towards wellness and taking care of people and keeping them out of the hospital. It's going to be about people, uh, not just patients. Yeah. And you, and you, you've done that here at Cleveland Clinic and you, you've also done it in, in we've, ways. we've done it. Yeah. And okay. You, we've done it. And you also, uh, not only just address the patient experience, but you're also addressed like, for example, the food in the environment and it's tough mm-hmm. and you battle against food companies and food service companies and vendors. And, uh, it's not been an easy, easy path, but you took, I mean, courage. And it's amazing. You're one of your um, key leaders is uh, CEO of Abu Dhabi, Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. And he's gone even a step further because I think there's more ability to do that with less pressures from food service companies. He got rid of all things white, the white flour, white sugar, processed anything and created a whole organic hospital food system, which would be amazing. So I, th- I think I'm delighted that people are moving further. I think we take the first few steps, and yeah. and, and it's going to be leaders in the future are going to uh, do even better. And, you know, the job of a leader is really to take an organization to places they're not sure they need to go. Mm. You have to lead people. So what's the most important thing you feel like you're, you're focused on and working on? Well, I'd, I'd like to see that... Um, you know, I'm, I'm helping the organization, particularly around uh, bringing the new technologies. And I see new technologies in all kinds of locations. I talked about the little things I'm seeing in the cloud um, and the technologies coming there. I've seen some incredible technologies, voice recognition that can tell whether or not you're on drugs. I've seen uh, the ability to do a scan of your retina that can make 60 diagnoses from that. Um, I think virtual care is going to take the help, take the care to the patient, yeah. uh, from having to come to the hospital. Um, and I think one of the leaders in that has been Kaiser Permanente, which now sees more than 50% of their patients virtually. Mm. Um, and just think about the potential of managing people's diabetes without having to come to the hospital yeah. to get their blood drawn or yeah. their hypertension the same way, or their dermatolo- dermatologic lesion. Um, we had an orthopedic surgeon here recently see a whole clinic of 23 people uh, from home because he had an injury. Really? Um, I, I think the, the potential for this sort of virtual care is going to help with rural um, uh, populations where the hospitals are not big enough to be sustaining. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about a, a lot of the opportunities that are uh, coming through the technology that I see, and I want to see them get, in, get incorporated. 
Amazing, Toby. Thank you so much for being part of The Doctor's Pharmacy. You've been listening to Conversations That Matter, The Doctor's Pharmacy with C- former CEO of Cleveland Clinic, Toby Cosgrove. If you like this podcast, please share with your friends and family on social media. Please leave a comment and review. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope to hear see you next time on The Doctor's Pharmacy.